Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Each week, Jake and I will endeavor to have a grace-infused cosmopolitan conversation about the lectionary texts for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the same old song of God's redeeming grace to what feels like an ever-changing and confusing world. And we'll do it all in 25 minutes or less. Jake, here we are back yet again singing what we like to call the same old song. What's going on? We're coming into Lent 3. Absolutely. Lent 3. We're in the middle of the season of Lent, <clears throat> and uh, we, uh, uh, we kick off our reading from the Old Testament. We are uh, with Israel in the season of Lent in the middle of the wilderness, on their journey to the wilderness. And uh, typically this far into the wilderness, uh, the human nature begins to bicker. Absolutely. Not that any pastors out there would know any of <laughs> bickering. This is the old covenant, you know, as, as the dispensationalists tell us, this is not, uh, you know, not anymore. There's yeah. no continuity. These things don't happen anymore. That was back then, and this is now. Right. But, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is the truth. You know, whenever um, uh, humans, and, and this is one of, one of the silver linings that holds all the readings together, I think, is, is a little bit kind of suffering and being alone. And, uh, and uh, when we are suffering and when we are alone, uh, we tend to uh, look backwards, but not in a positive sense, but in a negative sense to, you know, oh, wasn't it amazing when we used to be drug addicts? Or wasn't it amazing when we were slaves and in Egypt? You know, and this is, uh, and this is what ha- begins to happen here with Israel in the middle of the wilderness. You know, uh, why don't we have any water? Why did you bring us out of Egypt so that we would die? What kind of God is this? Howard Stern, you know, he, is, he lived, grew up in Roosevelt, Long Island. And when the neighborhood be- transitioned into a kind of poor neighborhood, uh, you know, it, it was a sort of middle class neighborhood that transitioned into a, a, a more challenging socioeconomic status. And he's like, I just wanted to move out. And I, I was getting beat up every day. But my parents, oh, they had to stay. They were, they were do-gooders. He's like, you know, my mother would have been the Jew in Egypt because his parents are Jewish. She would have been. Who is this Moses? Some pharaoh's not going to be run me out of Egypt. This upstart taking people to the desert. That uh, we're going. This pharaoh was not going to tell me where I'm going to live. I'm going to. We were here before this pharaoh, and we'll be here after. <laughs> Absolutely, and and like every pastor, I think Moses begins to question, like what. I mean, who, which pastor hasn't ever prayed this prayer? What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. I mean, who hasn't felt like that in a vestry meeting or at an annual meeting, at least from time to time? And if you haven't yet as a pastor, it's coming. And, um, and uh, the good news of the gospel found in this is that uh, God is with them in the midst of it. And uh, God, uh, God provides a way where there seems to be no way. And he is their provision in the midst of the desert. And in, uh, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, in literally the presence of Christ. Yeah, abso- I mean, absolutely. And I think, well, let me ch- just illustrate this. with Jake, you. so I'm going to ask you a math problem. This is, this, I promise this will have at least tangential relevance to what we're talking about. There's a bat and a ball. And together they cost a dollar ten. Now, 
the bat the bat is exactly a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? I thought they cost a dollar ten together, right? So, the, and if the bat costs oh. then ten, ten cents, because it right with that now it's that's what everybody says. All the Harvard students say ten cents. It's actually an easy problem. It's five cents. So if the bat if it adds up to a dollar ten. And it's like basic algebra. It's not really hard to figure out. But the mind associates – this is from a Danny Kahneman's book, um, uh, Fast and Slow Thinking. So basically – What are you of, saying? <laughs> most, of, most of our lives, we walk around thinking we know what we're doing right. and thinking we understand the world correctly. But that's a very basic math problem. Everybody gets wrong because once you hear the 10, you start associating in 10s. Just like when mm. we're looking at our life in a challenging situation – you know, they they do all these studies where people basically they spin a wheel of fortune. Uh, Kahneman and his um, colleague who wrote did all these studies about psychology and economics. They spin the wheel of fortune and then ask people with, you know, you know, a bunch of numbers and then ask people how many countries are in the con- on the continent of Africa. Mm-hmm. And the higher they spin, the more the higher they guess in, in countries. No, no relation at all. So this is just saying. Take the gospel's testimony about who we are, whose we are, our backstory, our present story, our future story, way more seriously than we treat our own perceptions when we're anxious, depressed, you know, restless, we feel attacked. Because on basic little things like math and countries on a continent, all these influences cause us to make snap assessments that are completely wrong. Mm. <laughs> completely wrong and so you know just like don't take your own testimony on who you are as seriously as the gospel's testimony That's really powerful, and that uh, that really moves us into uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 11, where uh, talk, Paul talks about um, this idea, our current circumstances do not... Um, do not define us over and above the work of the gospel, which is received by faith. He says, and not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and has been given to us. And, you know, that's very uh, that's very powerful. I mean, what you just said is that in the midst of that, you know, uh, it's counterintuitive, but the trust that uh, God's judgment about you and the gospel is greater than your surrounding circumstances. Amen to that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I'm reading this book right now. My buddy Bill Bohr and I are reading it and, and doing some podcasts about it by Tomas Halleck. And it's called uh, I Want You to Be Faith in the God of Love. And he says that in it, he says that um, to say God exists really, to say we really believe that, a good shorthand for that would be love makes sense. And that th- th- at the heart of God, I mean, these are like the, some of the only onto, really the only ontological statement we have, right? I think in the New Testament is that God is love, you know, uh, that this is a real, the being of God. And the, the, the path of love often takes circuitous and weird and confounding mm. uh, turns. And yet it, we, can tr- we can trust that in the midst of that, that in the peaks and the valleys, that 
we are not bereft of divine love. Mm. I, uh, I want to read um, uh, uh, just a quote from the Mockingbird devotional on this particular text. It's really good, uh, by Peter Moore. And he says, uh, when uh, commenting on Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, he says, For every Olympic athlete we watch, as they received their gold medal, there are thousands of others who almost made it but didn't. I was present when a friend lost his chance of going to the 1964 Tokyo Olympics by a hair. His non-Christian father was mortified at his failure, but my friend grew through it into a strong servant of Christ. Compare that with the sign on the walls of the Princeton University Boathouse, Show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser. The secular mind dismisses the therapeutic value of adversity as weakness, but Paul invites us in Romans 5, 1-5 to stand in a different place the place of grace. In this place, we discover a past in which we are at peace with God, a present in which we have full access to His mercy, and a future hope in sharing in His glory. But these gifts were won at the cost of suffering, namely Christ, and remain ours as we rethink the role of suffering in God's world. Looking at verses 3 and 4, suffering has such a therapeutic role in our lives that, rightly received, it enables us to endure the present while looking in hope to the future. This, says Paul, is the root of character, something that is always hammered out in the anvil of pain. Fortunately, we do not have to gut this out as if it were up to us to manufacture character with steely determination. There is a waterfall of love cascading down on our heads, which turns character building into spontaneous excitement and suffering into joy. That's beautiful. You know, it's really interesting in the... in the book Good to Great, I think Jim Collins talks about, they did a study on CEOs and he, they found that the worst CEOs spent a lot of time talking about their successes. The middling sort of average CEOs spent about equal amounts of time talking about in interviews their successes and their failures. The top-notch CEOs talked almost almost exclusively about their failures mm. and reflected on what they learned. And I think that that... I mean, that is the school of suffering <laughs> is the only place we learn uh, the language of love and, yeah. and hope. Right. Absolutely. Gosh, well, this... Uh, this really bridges, I think, the gap into the gospel reading, where we uh, see uh, God engaging us in ways we don't expect, and God um, operating in ways we don't expect, um, with his encounter with a woman from Samaria. Now, I don't know about in, in your church, uh, but in um, the Episcopal Church, whenever the gospel's read, the congregation always stands. And uh, this is such a long gospel that I, um, I really wish at least this one Sunday out of the three-year cycle we could just sit down. Because it is a it is a doozy. I mean, we can. And does your does your gospel uh, election book have a metal cover? Uh, some do. You know, you can buy those to place on it. But uh, we we just have the regular fancy gospel book. When I was in Texas, they have a met they had a metal cover on the elections book, and I thought, man, that that it was a young woman in the altar guild. She must do a lot of push-ups, you know, because you're going to have to hold this thing up. Mm. I mean, I I would go with what you have, the paperback. Yeah, man. But then again, I I don't have a tremendous amount of upper body strength. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, here we have Jesus, and uh, 
You know, uh, just I guess uh, what's helpful, I think, for a lot of folks is a little background onto this story, and that is is that uh, Jesus uh, comes to the Samaritan city called Sychar, and um, and there he is, and uh, and uh, this is a place um, uh, Samaria. Basically, the the the, the he- Samaritans and Jews were like the Hatfield and the McCoys. Uh, the Samaritans were kind of seen as like half-breed traders. Uh, you know, when the kingdom of Israel was divided into two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, what happened is they were all eventually conquered. But especially in Israel, which eventually became Samaria, basically the, um, the uh, captors would come in and they would take people and they would move them out and they would move other people in. And the Samaritans were the descendants of like kind of half-breed Jews who uh, just, just kind of, it was a big mess. And, uh, and they really hated each other so much so that most Jews would just take an extra day or two to walk around Samaria instead of having to walk through it, because if you walked through it, you were completely unclean. But here we see uh, Jesus, he's, uh, he's so clean that he makes that which is unclean clean. He just trucks right through it. And there he meets this Samaritan woman in the middle of the day who is drawing water. And, um, uh, you know, I grew up in the desert, and you always draw your water uh, or you go your, do your grocery shopping um, either early in the morning or in the evening, because it's just too dang hot. The people that are shopping in the middle of the day usually don't have a job or are uh, weirdos and um, and so but here we see Jesus um, encountering this woman in the middle of the day um, drawing water and there's so much to talk about here um, but uh, I think we should what do you think Scott yeah I think that anything stick out to you particularly well I think that in life sometimes like generally we're so fraudulent so much of the time that we can't even keep track of you know, the sort of image we're trying to put off to somebody. And sometimes you have these rare moments where somebody actually sees through you. Mm. And generally that either like, you know, ruptures a relationship, you know, or, or deepens it, you know, I mean, generally uh, somebody sees at the core, you know, the, the, the wounded self that, you're trying to protect with your stories and your, you know, yeah. It, I think of the the rich or the uh, parable, uh, the prodigal son when he comes back to the father. He's rehearsing his speech, right? How many of us rehearse his speech that we're going to say in our moments of insecurity, in our, our moments of defensiveness? And here, Jesus stops her speech mm. and says, "Now I'll tell you, you're right. You're right. You don't have, you know, one. You have said several that husbands. You're you're actually." Um, you know your identity that you're trying to put off is fraudulent and it's a mess and and that you don't you don't have to do that anymore i mean there's a and when you and when you get to actually put the the fraudulent identities down it's often a huge relief because it's the 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 the, the amount of energy you you know you you use keeping these stories going mm. it's just psychologically and emotionally exhausting and so here i think he he invites her to uh to put her burdens down but but it's not an easy invitation absolutely but you know in that invitation she begins to um in that invitation he begins to like reveal himself to her so that she discovers who she he actually is you know she uh she 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 goes from just calling him like hey a Jewish guy to uh, you're a pretty good teacher and a prophet and then to actually confessing him as Lord and becoming an evangelist herself. Yeah, and and you know it's interesting is 
she's she's also shocked. You know, it's interesting because he's able to speak uh, a challenging word first because he meets her where she's at. Mm. She's shocked that a Jewish man, especially, would talk to a Samaritan woman. So there's not just race, there's gender issues in a patriarchal society. So it, it, it's, you know, oftentimes, you know, uh, you've, it's the old young life motto, right? You've got to win the right to be heard. Mm. And Jesus wins the right to be heard. He comes down to her level. Uh, he doesn't sort of ask her to, to he, he doesn't ask her to come to his level. Like he does all the heavy lifting and reaching out to her. Yeah, it's very powerful too, though, because, you know, and it reminds me, and this is one of the things that Paul's always been tapping on, is that um, we're all concerned about secondary issues, um, but um, at the core of it is religion and the real issue. And, uh, you know, and you see in this conversation, you know, they talk about a relationship and they talk about Jew-Samaritan relations, but really when it gets down to it, this is about religion. And she says, woman, sir, I see that you are a prophet. And, you know, here we get at the core. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place that people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And then she says, "Woman, the woman said, I, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things. And Jesus said, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. And really, you know, I mean, he cuts right through all the secondary issues about her relationships and stuff like that. The things that she is using on one level to isolate herself from everybody else. He comes right at her and gets at the real root of the issue. And that is, you don't know God. And this is the thing uh, I think that Jesus is getting at. A lot of people think that, you know, it doesn't matter how you worship God. You know, whatever works for you. And uh, this, uh, and oftentimes when we take that attitude, we wind up worshiping the self ultimately. And uh, what Jesus is getting at is that actually God has revealed himself on how to be how to be worshipped. And in the old covenant, it was in Jerusalem in the temple. And now in this new covenant, he is worshipped through the mercy and grace of his son. Uh, you don't need to go searching and figuring out who God is, for He has revealed Himself to you. Yeah, and and the only thing it takes to be eligible uh, for Christian faith is need. Mm. <laughs> yeah, uh. Frank Lake says about this passage in Clinical Theology, another book, which if you can't, held it up like the lections mm. reading with a metal cover would build your <laughs> triceps. He says, as our Lord had already said to the woman at the well in Samaria. A woman with an insatiable thirst for men. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. This is an amazing offer. Not only does the Lord claim to fill the the thirsty soul's own need, but promises to make him able to quench the spiritual thirst of others. This alone fits the pastor for his task of pastoral cure. In the feeding of the 5,000, Christ had also proclaimed himself the bread of life, the bread of God coming down from heaven for the life of the world, so that he that cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. The indissoluble union of God and man within his own person is also part of the claim our Lord 
made at this feast of the tabernacles. The words of Christ are, he claims, the words of God. When he invites us to union with himself, it is God who invites us. His gracious offer of himself with the promise to satisfy all our urgent need for life is God's gracious offer of himself. Mm, That's amazing. And uh, when that is understood, you cannot help but go and tell everyone about the one you have encountered who has peeled back the onion of your life and told you all about yourself and has said, I know who you are better than you even know yourself, and I love you more than you could possibly know, and I have forgiven you more than you could possibly know. I mean, that message, that's exciting, and uh, that's something I want to share with people, not about the one who's told me how I need to get it together and has given me five steps on how to be a better person, but the one who has said, um, uh, you can't be a better person, and I love you and forgive you for that. Go tell on the mountain my friends. Mm. We will see you next week. That is truly the Savior of the world. Amen. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, go to our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please go over to iTunes, give us a rating, and write a review. Hopefully a favorable one. It helps so much. And Maybe share it with a friend via social media. If you have thoughts, comments, or questions, feel free to email me at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week.